Hey out there, everyone. Thank you for joining me for episode 43 of the Mark Dice Show. I do want to apologize in advance. We're getting about 30 to 40 mile per hour winds with up to 60, 65 mile an hour gusts. So if you can hear any background sound, that's probably what it is. The wind gusting pretty loudly. It's hitting against the walls and I don't know how much that would come, you know, how much that would be picked up by the mic, but wanted to let you know in advance. Also, Please go out and subscribe through iTunes, through your podcast app, however you're accessing this. There's probably an easier way than if you're going to the website and actually playing it directly off the website. And I'd love to see those numbers and and, and see the trend in those numbers. I really appreciate the support and um, all the feedback I've gotten and people saying, oh, I, I really like when you do this or when you do that. And it's helped me shape the show in the way that I want it to go. So thank you so much for your support. Still plenty to talk about. The Trump presidency has continued to be a treasure trove of news. And it's kind of difficult to decide what you're going to talk about in a given episode. What I want to talk about today, this isn't directly linked to Trump, but it's something that Trump ran on in his campaign and that really the Republicans as a whole ran on in 2016, in the in the 2016 election season. And that is repealing Obamacare. And first, it was just repeal Obamacare. That was the goal. That's what people were pushing. I think that's what a lot of the voters that voted Republican in this election thought would happen. And then it transitioned to repeal and replace. And then it even started to transition to repeal and repair. So it kept getting less and less severe, the language that people were using. And I think a lot of people just wanted Obamacare gone. I think most people probably don't understand enough about it. It is complex and it's a long bill there's there's a lot of language there and I I bet probably 0.01% of, of Americans have actually gone and read any of the language directly from the bill and even fewer have read the bill in its entirety I know I haven't read it in, in its entirety I've read sections of it certainly but people just wanted it gone they they saw what has happened and it's interesting kind of the dichotomy between how some people have reacted to Obamacare and how others have reacted to Obamacare and some think it's the it's the best thing ever a lot of them probably would prefer single-payer health care but once once the affordable health care or once the Affordable Care Act was on the table to be cut potentially people came out and defended it vigorously but then you had the other the other side of society the other side of this debate saying well look at how premiums have gone up premiums have gone up significantly and yes, the number of insured has gone up, but at what price? And that's the point that I want to make. People just keep throwing out this number that 20 million more people are insured than were insured pre-Obamacare. And there was a great episode today. I know, I know I've recommended this podcast before on this podcast, but please go and listen to the most recent Contra Krugman episode. And I will link to it in uh, my suggested readings referenced articles portion of this of this episode on the website. But their most recent episode, I believe it's episode 76, they bring on an expert in Obamacare that's written a lot on this. He wrote the book Overmedicated, uh, talking about basically the book. I haven't read it, but the synopsis is that that Medicare and Medicaid have, have distorted healthcare markets, essentially. I don't really know much beyond that. I can't speak exactly to his arguments besides what I read in that synopsis and what he talked about in this episode. But... Basically, they discuss all these claims that are being thrown around about why getting rid of Obamacare will be the end of the world and and 
really the apocalyptic language surrounding ending the Affordable Care Act. People talking about an extra tens of thousands of people dying every year due to not having Obamacare and the fact that, well, the, the claimed fact that 20 million more people are insured now than were insured before Obamacare. And that is true. But they do a great job of going through what what actually makes up that number. And when people are throwing that around, they want it to seem like 20 million more people have private health insurance. Really, that was the intent of Obamacare. They wanted to get all these people that couldn't be covered previously to be able to be covered after by private insurance. But instead, pretty much an entire 20 million additional, num- you know, that number, all of that was made up by people going on Medicaid. And that was not what the framers of the bill had in mind. That's not what the proponents of the Affordable Care Act had in mind. People going on Medicaid. Medicaid was available previously. And it's not high quality care whatsoever. It's it's not the kind of, of high quality insurance that the proponents of the Affordable Care Act had in mind. And now they're using that number very irresponsibly to try to elicit a response from certain people. And it's worked. People are throwing that number around everywhere. So they do a great job of breaking down that number. Also talking about the number that tens of thousands of additional people will die every year due to no longer having Obamacare in force. And they talk about why that number is very misleading. And really the data does not flesh that out. And it's once again a misleading projection based on numbers prior to the Affordable Care Act to today. And really there's a lot of data to support that there's been no net change. And there's even some data to support that there actually has been increased mortality after Obamacare has been in force than prior to Obamacare. So please go and listen to that. They do a far better job of representing this than I possibly could. And all, all I'd be doing is rehashing their arguments more than I already have here. But I just wanted to give a good introduction there. And there's a lot of good content out there. I'll try to link to a couple other things that dispel these these myths or these half-truths out there that people have come out in support of, of Obamacare. And if you criticize if you criticize Obamacare online, you get people coming out and claiming all the same, you know, all the same information, all the same rhetoric over and over again. So this can be a way to counteract that or say, hey, it's a lot more complicated than you think. Obamacare is not the panacea that you think it is. And I think that's a far more nuanced position to take to criticize Obamacare. And, and, and first you can point to the increase in premiums. But even when you say the, even when you say, look at how premiums have increased, first people will say, well, you're just being selfish if, if you can't afford a little bit more to support these people that couldn't get insurance before. And look at how good everything is now in the healthcare industry when things aren't good, of course, but that's, that's basically the first argument that you have. So then the goalposts keep changing and then you have to go and you have to start discussing additional people being insured and you have to fight that battle. So you have to fight this battle on multiple fronts if you're trying to trying to sway hearts and minds. But anyways, back to the original point uh, point that we were discussing initially. And the piece of news here is that the House Republicans have crafted a bill to replace the Affordable Care Act. And it does follow that repeal and repair language that I'd said before, or at least repeal and replace. A lot of the similar things have been have been kept in force. 
and it's really not different. It's it's pretty much Obamacare 2.0. So people coming out, both the side that's saying, "Oh my gosh, this is the this is the worst bill ever. All it's doing is taking the teeth out of Obamacare, and things are going to going to absolutely go to hell because of this new bill." Are being way too over the top, I think, because it's pretty similar overall. But then the people coming out in support of this, people who had previously supported repealing Obamacare, like this is something fundamentally different. Those people are also very wrong. And several people have come out and said that all this is is that bill dressed up in new clothing and trying to be repackaged and resold to the American people. They're trying to re- replace Obamacare with Trump care. And it's very similar. So the direct Obamacare taxes and subsidies have been removed. The individual mandate penalty has been removed. So those are some of the major things that people think of when they think of the Affordable Care Act. But what it's being replaced with isn't very different. So there there are still penalties on people if you do not keep coverage continually. There's a 30% penalty there. If people do not keep themselves insured continually, which is very similar to the to the individual mandate where you're penalized at the end of the year if you have not kept coverage all year. Very similar, just couched in different language and sold differently. And instead of the subsidies now, they're trying to replace it with a new refundable tax credit. And that'll be available starting in 2020 if this bill is passed to help people buy health insurance. So this is kind of a, a subsidy once again couched in different language. I know that tax credits are different. Basically, it's allowing you to keep more of your own money, but it's allowing you to keep more of your own money if you do what, you know, what you're supposed to do, what the law wants you to do. So, it is a subsidy in a in a certain sense, just couched in different language, just sold differently. So, and then of course all the all the taxes that go to pay for this if if there aren't direct taxes it's going to be rolled into general taxation so it's not like the tax burden goes anywhere and it's not clear that this is going to be cheaper or even if it is cheaper to be significantly cheaper than the affordable care act was so this republican plan is no different and i agree with those saying this is obamacare 2.0 it has similar problems if if anything it doesn't have the same internal sort of consistency that the Affordable Care Act had. And I talked about that, I believe, in my prior episode, in episode 42. I discussed how the Affordable Care Act, if you do want to solve that end problem, if you think that the, that the government can solve it, I don't think it is solvable. But if you do want to solve that problem where pre-existing, people with pre-existing conditions cannot get health insurance, then the way that you do it kind of has to be what happened in the Affordable Care Act. You have to mandate everybody to buy health insurance because if, if, you, if you try to price fix people at a certain age or with certain characteristics, you try to say everybody there has to be charged the same. You cannot discriminate based on pre-existing conditions. Well, if that's the case, then premiums are going to rise significantly as more and more people with pre-existing conditions come in. Healthy people are going to drop out. They're, they're no longer going to purchase insurance because they know... I'm being overcharged for the actual value that I'm getting in return. And if I do get sick, I can go on, go out and I can buy health insurance. Now that I have this pre-existing condition, now I can go out in the market and buy and not be discriminated against. So it works both ways there. So the system would collapse far quicker than Obamacare was collapsing. So you, if, you know, if you take the next step, you have to force everybody to buy health insurance 
in order for healthy younger people to be subsidizing sicker people with with pre-existing conditions that's almost how it has to work if you think that that's a solvable problem that the, that the government should be involved in i of course don't think it should be and i think it's done far more harm than good and the way that it was sold was was incredibly deceptive and people were talking about this before the fact i pointed out i, I tweeted this out i don't know if i ever talked about this on um on this podcast but Brian Kaplan in the myth of the rational voter that came out before Obamacare was passed. And he, he said, this is the type of, of healthcare legislation that could be passed. And he basically described the affordable care act play by play. And then said, this is probably, this is how it would unravel if these things weren't in place. So it's pretty incredible that he, he basically predicted exactly what would happen prior to it even happening, you know, prior to the bill even being passed. And then when the bill was being debated and eventually passed, a lot of people predicted this would happen and and they were proven correct that premiums would have would necessarily have to rise choice would fall you know there wouldn't be as wide of a range of options anymore under the affordable care act as there was previously so a lot of people predicted this this didn't come out of nowhere based on how the bill was set up how you know how the how the legislation was set up premiums were necessarily going to rise and the, the people that were trying to dilute us um, and, and trying to persuade us that that wasn't the case, all they were doing was trying to sell something for partisan reasons. Or they, they truly do think that, that the government can solve this issue when it's not an issue that government can solve, I don't think. Uh, so this is something to follow. This is something you should be putting pressure on, especially your Republican representatives. If, if you are somebody that does not like Obamacare, does not like what has happened, if you're one of the multitude of Americans that has seen their premiums rise significantly during during this this Obamacare expansion then you were already squeezed previously and you've been squeezed even tighter due to this and there's no way for you to drop out otherwise you have to pay you know thousands of dollars at the end of the year depending on how how big your family is if if you fall in that category put some pressure on your Republican congressman and this is the problem with the Republican party I, I wish that there was a small government option, an actual legitimate party at the federal level, or I mean really at the local level. What other party other than Democrats and Republicans are viable at the local level? Nobody really. You know, libertarians aren't viable at the local level. I wish they were, even though I have my own problems with the libertarian party. But the Republicans sell themselves every election season as the small government alternative. Like, oh look at the look at the huge democratic budgets and they're so profligate with their spending. And we're going to come in and we're going to, we're going to tighten our belts and we're going to get rid of this excess regulation. That's what they say every single election season, and it never happens. When, when's the last time that the Republicans have come to power federally and actually made any sort of meaningful cuts? I don't think ever. I, I can't think of a, a single instance. People would probably go back to 1994 with Newt Gingrich, but that wasn't a notable change in in spending there weren't notable cuts in 1994 and this is what republicans have become and we cannot keep falling for this bs that they're selling us because that's really what it is it's bs they they run on this they run as the opposition it was easy for them to run against obamacare but then they get into office and they don't do what the people elected them to do because they're too scared of the repercussions because what happens is when you pass this kind of legislation, 
there there are a lot of special interests that now spring up around this legislation. People that are dependent on it. They've they've changed their habits, changed their behaviors, changed their lifestyles to to work around this new legislation to take advantage of whatever benefit this new legislation is providing. So when you take that legislation away, when you take that crutch away, people are initially going to be hurt by it. Some people will be. A lot of people I think will be benefited in in almost all cases, more people will benefit from getting rid of that legislation than will be hurt by it. That tends to be. But the visible people are the ones that are hurt initially by getting rid of that legislation. And that's what's scaring these Republicans about getting rid of Obamacare without having a replacement in effect. And the replacement looks very similar to the to the initial bill, to the initial legislation. So putting pressure on on your senator, on on your representative at the federal government level saying, we've had enough of this. We've had enough of you selling yourself one way, of your party selling itself one way, and then never, ever following through on any of those promises. And that's the biggest problem with the Republican Party right now. And and all that Trump has done has, has made it worse because he's now shown that being this, having this populist sort of rhetoric that is generally big government. Trump is a big government guy. He's not a small government guy. Some people think that because he's a businessman that makes him small government. Not one bit. And a lot of businessmen, especially businessmen that that own large businesses, a lot of them like big government because it's easy for them to manipulate and to, to get in there and, and, and to get legislation passed that's going to, going to help them and to keep competition out of the way. And I'm not saying that's necessarily why Trump likes big government or why he's why he's biased toward big government, but it certainly plays a role. Just because somebody's somebody's a businessman doesn't mean that he or she favors small government. And for some reason, people make that sort of make that sort of connection in their mind when they're thinking about Trump. But Trump is a big government guy, and he showed the rest of the Republican Party that that formula can be successful electorally. And so I think the party's moving in that direction, moving even farther in a big government direction from where it was. And it, it already was a big government party. We, we, we saw a huge government expansion under George W. Bush. And of course, when it became easy to, to oppose Barack Obama and what, and what Obama did, they became the opposition again, saying, how dare, they, how dare they expand spending this much? How dare Barack Obama do this? When, of course, all he was really doing was continuing what Bush had done previously. And then when, when they get back into power and a guy in their party becomes president, all of a sudden they become hesitant to follow through on any of that opposition that they'd had to the opposition party before, to, to the Democratic Party before. So this has been the Republican Party playbook over and over again, and they're not different from Democrats. They may be big government for different reasons, and the Republican Party may be a little bit more hospitable to people with libertarian-leaning ideas. And there are no libertarian-leaning Democrats out there, at least none that I've discovered. If you have any, please send them my way. You know, maybe they're maybe they're anti-interventionists in terms of foreign policy, but I guess I do have to give the Republican Party a little tiny bit of credit because it is a little bit more hospitable to libertarian-leaning, small-government ideals, some of those guys can find their way in the party. You know, Rand Paul 
is in the Republican Party. Ron Paul was a Republican. Thomas Massey is a Republican. Um, Justin Amash is a Republican. You know, there there are some examples out there of small government Republicans, but they are completely overwhelmed by the big government wing. I don't, you can't even call it a wing. I mean, it's it's all the wings, basically. There may be one small wing that's small government, libertarian-leaning. But this is the issue with the Republican Party, and we have we have two big government parties that control the government, that control the federal government, that control politics, essentially, in this country. And there's no way to oppose them at this point. There There isn't an alternative unless a ton of people wake up and want to support something else, but it doesn't look like that's happening. You know, people will point to, oh, look at Gary Johnson getting... Four percent of the vote, three three something percent of the vote in the in the presidential election. Like this is some sort of, some sort of, you know, something we should be celebrating. Like there's a sea change in American politics. Well, there's not. There, if anything, the Libertarian Party alienated its base and is more fractured now than it was prior to the election. And they squandered a tremendous opportunity to make an impact in this presidential election. And there should have been. Some there should have been some momentum coming out of that presidential election, going into congressional elections, maybe going into into state and local elections, and you haven't really seen that for the Libertarian Party. And some people thought maybe the maybe the Green Party could see some, you know, see some some new momentum due to Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. What happened to Bernie in that whole election process where he was really mistreated? I thought by the Democratic Party. I thought that might push some people to the Green Party and give them momentum, but that didn't really happen either. Um, and of course, Jill Stein had her major problems and, and wasn't a fantastic candidate either. But you haven't seen this this run toward third party, and the Democrats and Republicans still control things. And it's going to be that way for the foreseeable future. Of course, things can change fast, and there's precedent in American history for that happening, for parties dying relative, you know, relatively quick deaths. But it doesn't look like that's happening any time in the next decade or two. Uh, and I really hope it does. I would love to see both these parties die. I, I think both of them are horrible for the American people. And I think they've both become monsters that we that we can't control. And, uh, and until we have real opposition, until there is actual choice and actual, an actual difference between the two parties, nothing will change. And of course, I don't think that having a third party that that more aligns with my views or the views of people like me will change everything. I think there's still, there's such major issues that that wouldn't do a ton in and of itself to change things, but it would be a step in the right direction at the very least. And just this Obamacare debate and and the repeal and replace and our repeal and repair, whatever you want to call it, it just exemplifies what's been happening with the Republican Party and why this isn't a party that you should keep running back to expecting them to have real resistance to to the progressive march toward toward bigger government and toward more federal control because they want the exact same thing. They have just as much to gain by a centralization of power, by concentrating power in the central government as the Democrats do. And that's the cold hard fact. Any of you Republicans out there that that want to bill yourself as being small government or being anti-government either or anti-government even, you should really be taking a hard look at the mirror and who you're supporting in that party and and what your party has done and how your party's contributed to this march toward 
toward huge government. So that's probably that's about what I wanted to discuss with the whole Obamacare Affordable Care Act issue and the and the House Repu- House Republican plan here. And I'll try to keep you updated on this. This is one of my favorite topics, of course. I think this and and higher education, student loans, two of the things that I try to follow closest, and, and the Federal Reserve as well. But I think the Federal Reserve is is intertwined with all these issues. And we, I may be talking soon. I don't know if I'll do it on this podcast or not about whether or not the Fed's going to raise rates at its March meeting. It looks like it's it's being priced in. People are saying it's basically a sure thing, which you know, would be a a substantial acceleration of what they had been doing over the last year and a half. And they had had one rate hike in December 2015, another 25 basis point hike in December 2016. And now it looks like there's going to be another one in March. So could there actually be two or three this year? Maybe. And the, the continued bubble in the stock market is doing Janet Yellen favors. It's making it impossible really for them to try to justify not raising rates. All the data that they try to use to justify not raising rates, there, there's not really wiggle room there anymore. You know, inflation has has hit 2%. Uh, you can't continue to point to the unemployment rate. There's not a there's not an event in the future that they can point to global uncertainty. Like they've done with Brexit, they've done with China for a while, then they did with the election. You know, there, there's not that event anymore that they can point to. So it looks like they're going to be forced to raise yet again, probably raise another 25 basis points, raise it up to 75 to the, the Fed funds target to 75 to 100 basis points, and then see what happens from there. Uh, but I'll I'll probably talk about that more in another episode. I did want to talk about a particular piece of news before I go today, and that's about a House committee in Arizona, so in the in the state house. They they passed a bill to quote unquote support sound money. So basically the bill would eliminate state capital gains taxes on gold and silver and encourage its use as currency. So basically it would take away one of the major impediments to using gold or silver as currency, which is it's treated basically like a stock would or or a bond would where there's their capital gains taxes if, if the value of it has risen between the time when you acquired it and the time when you sell it or you know when you use it to buy something else you're taxed on that on that capital gain whereas with money that doesn't happen you know you acquire a dollar and you use a dollar a year later to buy something you're not taxed on the change of that dollar if that dollar is if the dollar's gained value against other currencies you don't have to pay a tax on that, but you have to do that with gold and silver. So what this bill is trying to do is trying to eliminate those barriers to using gold and silver. And this is a this is a big step. You know, it hasn't it hasn't passed or anything. It hasn't become law in Arizona. But we could see a sea change here. And I talked about before. I, I said that the Federal Reserve is intertwined with all of these issues at the federal government level and at the state level as well, state and local level as well. This, this interest rate distortion has screwed up everything. Interest rates are involved in every aspect of human life, really. At least every commercial aspect of human life. And most of our, most of our lives have some sort of relation to, 
to commercial transactions. You know, whether it's going out and and what what am I going to buy? Am I going to spend money on a new car? Or am I going to buy a new house? Or am I going to save this money? Or am I going to put it toward retirement? Or you know, what am I going to do with with every dollar I earn? Am I going to take that vacation? Or or am I going to stay at home this year? And and am I going to put that money I would have spent toward other uses? Anything you can think of has some sort of relation to spending money and to commercial transactions. So the Federal Reserve is intertwined in all these issues, like I said. And one of the major reasons why the Federal Reserve System is still in force and why it does not see see major opposition is because it has a, has a monopoly over currency in the United States. And it's due to rules like this that make it difficult or impossible to use gold and silver for currency transactions. So basically gold and silver are put, a, put at a competitive disadvantage from Federal Reserve notes to start. And how can you ever expect them to gain a foothold if there's this artificial barrier to them being used? And that's how, that's how the only way that monopolies can remain in force is with government legislation. And that's what has happened here. Special rules in the tax code and special laws that make it more difficult to use gold and silver and other, I guess you could call it alternative money, really original money. It's money before fiat money, before paper money was was brought into effect. Gold and silver have, have historically been used for money. You know, it's, it, it's been the most stable form of money in human history. We came a long way from from using whatever may have been used in the past, whether it was shells or, you know, whether it was whatever of any multitude of things people could use as as a form of exchange. Gold and silver have been almost universal and have held their value, have always had uses in human society and haven't been at the whims of creation by a government. Uh, so that's why gold and silver, why a lot of small government types promote gold and silver, promote its use because they know it cannot be manipulated to the effect that fiat money can. And fiat money has been manipulated. If you look at the time when the Federal Reserve was created in 1913 to today, the U.S. dollar has lost about 95% of its value. Whereas the value of, of gold and silver, yes, they fluctuate, but generally they've it stayed pretty similar over time. And if you had if you had received a wage in in gold at that time in 1913, it could buy you about the same today. It could buy you about uh, buy about the same basket of goods today as it could then. That's why small government types promote using gold and silver, and why some small government types are loving this this move. The Tenth Amendment Center. I read uh, Michael Bolden. He's the executive director. the The Tenth Amendment, if you don't know, is the is the amendment in the Constitution that says that all powers not given to the federal government are reserved to the states and to the people in the Constitution. So the Tenth Amendment Center deals with a lot of those issues of federal overreach and taking power from the states and unconstitutional actions by the federal government. A lot of these types of things, and they do a lot of good work. Something definitely worth checking out. But he says, quote, this isn't going to end the Fed's monetary monopoly overnight, but it sets the foundation and opens the door for more market activity by the people. This is an important part of the overall strategy, and activists in Arizona should continue working to get both bills passed. So the hope is here that if this passes, and if you start to see gold and silver be used in competition with Federal Reserve notes, with with dollars, that 
you're going to see dollars be outcompeted because dollars over time are continu- continually losing their value. Inflation is continuing to erode away the value of those dollars. And if people want something that's going to hold its value over time and they're able to use it easily for exchanges, if there's not that artificial barrier anymore keeping it from being used in commercial exchanges, then you'll see gold and silver start to become more and more prevalent because people will want to hold that whereas they don't want to hold dollars. Something else I want to discuss in relation to this too is a a big thing that Peter Schiff has been promoting and that's gold money it's called and you can go to their website I'll put a link to it it's it's goldmoney.com and basically what it is is it's a it's a checking account and you get a debit card just like you would with any checking account that's in gold and it's insurable up to a certain amount I forget exactly what the value is that it's insured up to it's up to it's tens of thousands of dollars at least maybe over a hundred thousand I think it might be fifty forty fifty thousand dollars something like that that they will fully insure for any account holder up until that point and you know probably for most people they're not going to be holding things that you know cash that they're using to make general transactions at much higher rates than that I'm not at the point yet where I've been able to give this a try. I'm, I'm trying to accumulate cash right now. Worked hard to pay off my student loans, and and we were going down that path full bore for a while. Now trying to build the cash savings back up, maybe be in the market to buy a house or you know, at least have the flexibility to be able to, to buy a house and, and have a substantial down payment. So that's what I'm working toward right now, and I'm not really in the position to have a gold money account because I'm, I'm trying to just keep it in a savings account for right now, even though I know the value over time would be eroded. If I'm holding that, that money long term, I may start to look to to putting it into gold money. But sorry to go off on that tangent, but gold money basically you you put in dollars, it's converted into gold. There's a there's a percentage fee on the front end and the back end. So when you put it in and when you spend it, but it's a nominal fee. I think it might be 0.5%, something like that. Uh, so nothing nothing egregious. And it's 0.5%, I believe, from spot. And you have this money in your account, and now it's gold. You have this gold in your account, so it's going to obviously change in value with with how gold changes. But you can do all your regular transactions with this money in your account. So you can effectively hold gold, and the biggest issue with gold, that you're going to be taxed, and that there are all these artificial impediments to using gold, are taken away by this. So this is a really cool product, a really great idea, and it's something that could fundamentally change how we conduct transactions in this country. And this can be used all around the world too. It it, it does help rather than just having your account in US dollars and having to convert you know, when you make a purchase in another country, the dollars have to be converted to that currency. This gold is being converted to whatever currency you were using. So um, it makes the currency exchange mechanism easier. Uh, So that's something that's pretty exciting. If that sounds like something that would appeal to you, I implore you to go check it out. I would love to hear firsthand from somebody that I know, if, if this is somebody I know listening to this or from any listener, how the process goes. It has pretty good reviews and it's something that I will try when I'm in the, the right position to do it. I just right now, it's not in the cards for me. But that sounds very appealing when over time I do worry about if I have this money saved, if I have cash saved, I don't want to have it in cash because I don't want it to continually lose value every year. You know, even in a high yield, quote unquote, high yield savings account, 
where you're getting 1%, you're still losing value on that money every year. Whereas with gold, on average over time, it's going to be maintaining its value. And as the dollar erodes, gold will continue to get more value in terms of dollars, converted to dollars. So these are both these are both intriguing developments in terms of challenging the Fed's monopoly on the money supply in the United States. And how can you counteract this? Most of the time, since 1913, I think most people thought, you know what, I'm along for the ride. There's nothing I can do really to resist this. I have to conduct everything in dollars. I don't have an alternative. So I'm at the whims of what the Fed does and what the federal government decides to do. Uh, but now there's a lot more that you can do as a regular person, as as an average person, no matter how much or how little money you have, where you can start to erode away at this monopoly a little bit. And the only way that we're going to change these things is one by one. I, of course, would love to think that it's possible for there to be a critical mass of politicians out there that start to criticize the Fed and, and, we, and we get rid of the Fed. But I don't think that's going to happen. I at least don't see indications of that happening. There's a very tiny minority of politicians out there that are even willing to criticize the Fed, let alone call for its, uh, for its abolition. So the only way that we can really change this is by, is by doing things locally. And this was one of the points I've tried to make throughout this show. I talked about the presidential election and people getting very worked up about which candidate is going to win. And people talking about how their life is going to be so so different if Hillary Clinton wins or if Donald Trump wins, one or the other. Um, but you really can't control that. There's nothing you can do to influence that outcome. Maybe you can influence a, a handful of voters to vote a certain way or you can go out and campaign. Maybe you can be really, really lucky and influence 100 voters to vote in a particular way. Even if you do that, though, you're probably not influencing the election anyway. And I, of course say that you should be out trying to, you know, trying to have discussions with people, trying to put your views out there and discussion is good. Respectful discussion is good. So that's obviously important, but you really can't change much. I think through the political mechanism at this point, it's, it's too big of a monster and it's very difficult for you to change. So what you can change are your own personal actions and, and your own activities and this is one instance here where you can challenge the monopoly that the Federal Reserve has. You can change your behavior and you can you can start to move in a direction where you are not dependent on their actions, where you're not just along for the ride on the winding river, you know, on in the rapids just taking you down the river. You can start to paddle against it. You can start to have some control. You can start to move in the direction that you want to move in. So that that should be your major takeaway here. And a lot of this, I, I try to put some sort of optimism there that, that you do have some control and that the internet should continue to give you more and more control. There should be more innovation, more ways that you can take matters into your own hands and not be at the whim of political action, of votes at the federal level far away in Washington, D.C., where, like I said, you're, you're not going to be able to influence that. At least, you know... 9,999 times out of 10,000, you're not going to be able to influence that. Maybe you can call your your congressman and he's the he or she is the exact right person to to call and that they can actually do something and take your testimony and, and affect some change at the federal level. But that's kind of a pipe dream that that happens. It's very, very rare that, that you can get that lucky that things will happen. But what you can control are your own actions. So that's, I think, what I'm going to, 
that's where I'm going to end today. I do have quite a few other things. I've been just making notes of stories that would be fun to talk about or would be would be good to talk about. And I probably should have talked about the Donald Trump, Barack Obama feud now with Trump accusing Barack Obama of wiretapping Trump Tower. But everybody's talking about that. And I don't really care. You know, I don't care about all of this back and forth and he said, she said, and all these baseless accusations where Trump basically is is projecting what was projected at him. He's he's throwing it back at them in a very similar way. And a lot of these baseless Russia claims and the Democrats have run with it. The anti-Trump people have run with pinning every everybody to Russia and pinning Jeff Sessions to Russia pinning you know they they already they already got Mike Flynn out of there I've um, been trying to get Trump out because of these these Russia connections that are that are very loosely supported by the facts but then what does Trump do he goes out and he th- he he throws this this tweet out there without really anything backing it up without without having his facts ready next to him that Obama ordered his his residents to be wiretapped ordered ordered trump tower to be wiretapped which it very well could have been wiretapped i'm sure it was wiretapped or probably all wiretapped to a certain extent but did obama really order that to happen i can't say no i can't say that didn't happen but why throw the accusation out there when when that's what you've been railing against other people for doing why does he go out and throw similar things back at other people. I think he can't help himself. He thinks he's got to get his jabs in where he can. But all it does is just add credence to the Russia accusations and other baseless accusations because they think, oh, if Trump's making these these wild claims that Obama's ordering him to be wiretapped, then it means he must be trying, he must be desperately trying to to get the news away from his Russia ties. And that's why he's doing it. I, th- I think it adds a lot of credence to those, to those stories, to those Russia connections, and to the other baseless claims that are made against Trump without evidence. And all it's going to do, we're just going to keep going back and forth like this. There are going to be more baseless claims now made against Trump, and they're going to say, well, obviously Trump is incredible when he denies these things because look at what he said about Obama, and, and that wasn't supported whatsoever. So all Trump does is throw out baseless accusations, and then Trump's going to throw other things back at the media and back at his political opponents, and it's just going to be it's just going to be this constant seesaw. And I don't want to contribute too much to it by talking about it by by degrading the content on this podcast by discussing it too much. But it is a big story, so I should at least mention it, I guess. We'll see if I talk about it next episode or not. I think that may have been a may have been an adequate enough treatment. But thank you for joining me and hopefully I will have another one out later this week. And please go out, subscribe, tell your friends, share however you know, however you spread content. I would really, really appreciate it. Have a great week. 